Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Tonight on Revolt Black News, a controversial murder law. Somebody's dead, but I ain't doing it. Imagine being convicted of murder when everyone knows you didn't actually kill anyone. You don't have to pull the trigger to be charged with murder, okay? The law that's sending black people to jail for life and why some are saying it's time to end it for good. The new black masculinity. For a black man to get ahead and to be accepted in Hollywood, you gotta start feminizing yourself. Abbott Elementary star Tyler James Williams answers questions about his sexuality and defunding black-owned media. Why haven't big corporations been keeping their promises? If you ain't having a money conversation, you're not having a conversation. Plus, Gabrielle Union is calling Hollywood on their ish. There's so much about Hollywood that is bullshit. How she's using her voice to make change. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Mara Escampo. We begin tonight with a story that may turn everything you thought you knew about the criminal justice system on its head. Imagine being charged with murder when prosecutors acknowledge you didn't actually kill anyone. Well, there's a law in the books in 48 states that makes that possible. It's called felony murder, and a disproportionate number of young black people are being convicted for killings they did not physically commit. Lakeith Smith was 15 years old when he learned he was facing murder charges. Somebody's dead. So this is the first time you knew that somebody was dead? Yeah. But I ain't doing it. You don't have to pull the trigger to be charged with murder, okay? That was also when he learned about felony murder, charged with taking a life even though everyone from prosecutors to the victim's family agreed he didn't do it. Well, at that moment, I just was crying, knowing I was going to jail for a murder that I ain't do. That's the only thing that was going through my mind. And then my friend had died, so all that just was going through my mind at one time. In February of 2015, Lakeith and four friends broke into two unoccupied homes in Millbrook, Alabama, a small town just 10 miles from the state capital of Montgomery. When police showed up, Lakeith ran away. I just thought that, you know, they just had started shooting at us. And I was away for like, I got away for like an hour or two in the woods, but I ain't not, not me knowing nobody had died. But his friend, 16-year-old Adante Washington, ran into trouble. Shot three times by officers and killed on the scene. I always think about it, and it just be like a thought, like, why me? Why he had to die with me? Why I had to be charged with it, you know? The officers were cleared of any wrongdoing. But Lakeith and the three surviving teens were all charged with murder for Adante's death. So in Lakeith's case, um, he took this to trial. His friends took a plea deal. Why did he want to take this to trial? Because he was on the principle. He didn't do anything. He knew, yeah, find me guilty of burglary. I'll plead to that. Uh, I'll plead to theft of property. I did all that. But to plead guilty to killing my best friend, uh, that just wasn't something he was willing to do, and he didn't quite understand the nuances of the law. 
The all-white jury sentenced Lakeith to 65 years in a maximum security adult prison for what happened that night, essentially a life sentence for the 17-year-old. He had never had an adult crime, never had any violent crimes on his record whatsoever. Uh, and to punish him this harshly when the court knew that he had no intent uh, for his friend to die, uh, it, was, it was a horrific sort of situation. Felony murder laws exist federally and in 48 states. They allow prosecutors to charge anyone involved in a crime with murder if someone dies while that crime is happening. Even if they didn't kill anyone themselves, didn't mean to kill anyone, or had no way of knowing that someone might die. So you could be convicted of murder even if everybody knows you didn't actually kill anyone. You could even be at home um, and just have knowledge of the underlying felony. And even if police are responsible for the death. I think if it had happened today, the officer probably would have put on, been put on leave, investigated, and possibly charged with a, a crime himself. It's still a lot from leaving 15 to now 24. It's still a lot from me childhood, education. It's still a lot, friends, family. You have now had to fight this fight for your son's freedom, essentially for his life, for the last nine years. How has this been for you? It's a roller coaster, but my faith has not changed. My faith has not changed. I want to be. I know that we will get my son home sooner than later. Is this something that is affecting a lot of teens? Uh, absolutely. The young minority population, uh, officers use it as a catch-all often use it as a mechanism to try to uh, force them to flip or turn on other co-defendants. The sentences for felony murder are harsh. In some states, a mandatory minimum of 50 years. In other states, mandatory life without parole. Well, they're extreme sentences. They're treated as if they committed the actual murder. Um, so it can be 25 years to life. It can be 50 years to life, it can be life without parole, or it could be the death penalty, depending on the state and also depending on the severity of the crime. And research shows these laws disproportionately penalize young people, women, and black people. Prosecutors can basically pick and choose when and how to apply felony murder laws. On January 6th, you know, obviously the folks stormed the Capitol and there was this woman who officer said, if you come in here and burglarize here, we're going to shoot you. He shot and killed her, but none of the other folks that were with her that stormed the Capitol, that stole items, that committed felonies were charged with her murder. Um, and it's because it's disproportionately used against young black individuals. Uh, and it's completely a sort of a prosecutorial discretion on how they use that tool. In October of 2017, Cameron Terrell, a rich white kid from a wealthy neighborhood, was driving his Mercedes with two black teens when they got into a fight. The teens shot and killed 21-year-old Justin Holmes. This surveillance video shows them getting into Cameron's Mercedes after the shooting, Cameron speeding off, fleeing the scene of the crime. Prosecutors say later that evening, Cameron shot a video in his bathroom, throwing gang signs, seemingly celebrating the murder. And six days later, video footage would allegedly show Cameron kicking over candles at the memorial site of the victim. Hi, I'm uh, here from Channel 7. I was trying to see if anyone is available to comment about Cameron. No, we're not. Twelve days later, all three were charged with premeditated murder and attempted murder. 
Cameron's rich parents were able to bail him out, and Cameron beat the charges, his lawyer claiming that he didn't know the other two boys would kill Holmes and that he didn't know anyone in the car had a weapon. None of that would have been a valid defense for felony murder. I'm just happy to be free. I'm happy this is over with. Two black juveniles are probably facing a life sentence to where an adult took them to do something where he should have been held responsible just as much. So what kinds of reforms are needed? In California, we reformed it. We didn't completely abolish it. Um, however, the law was retroactive, and we've had hundreds, if not thousands, of people being able to go home to their loved ones. And I hope that other states and even the federal government uh, follows with this, this reform and gets rid of this terrible, terrible law. Some states are reforming these laws by reducing sentencing recommendations or raising the minimum age for felony murder prosecution. As for Lakeith in Alabama, his family says they won't stop fighting for him until he's freed altogether. I want the courts to just, you know, to see it for what it is. Um, you should have initially gave my son, you know, the time for what he did. The time should have fit the crime. And as for overall, I would like for us to be able to save juveniles, you know, um, get some kind of law in effect where this federal money thing can't can just stop swallowing babies up. Can just stop swallowing up our little black woman. And Lakeith is not only fighting for his own freedom, but also to be free so that he can be present in his daughter's life. Well, first I want to be there with my daughter the most. She turned eight in July. I ain't had a chance to be with her yet, so I want to be with her the most. We'll keep following Lakeith's story and we'll keep you updated. Coming up on Revolt Black News, why Abbott Elementary star Tyler James Williams is publicly addressing questions about his sexuality. That's coming up next. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Welcome back. In recent months, we've seen several high-profile black men celebrate non-traditional masculinity. From Jonathan Majors on the cover of Ebony Magazine in a pink fur, to rappers proudly wearing nail polish. While some are applauding this new freedom, others say it's hurting black men and the community. We're taking a look at the new black masculinity. I gotta put you in the hot seat. All right, let's do it. Abbott Elementary star Tyler James Williams is making headlines for more than just his performance on the hit sitcom. Well, what about the collard greens I planted? That was spinach, which is not an easy mistake to make. Recently, the Golden Globe award-winning actor took to Instagram to address questions about his sexuality, stating, quote, usually I wouldn't address stuff like this, but I feel like it is a conversation bigger than me. I'm not gay. He went on to say, quote, being straight doesn't look one way. Being gay doesn't look one way. And what may seem like harmless fun and conversation may actually be sending a dangerous message. What's your biggest turn off when it comes to dating? Ego. Mm, you want to elaborate? I need to, I, need to, I need to be able to go vulnerable and deep with somebody. And ego stops that. While many have applauded Tyler and the more nuanced portrayals of black men in media, some have complained that it signals a deliberate feminization of black men. In today's culture, 
we are pushing a more flamboyant, less masculine man, period. So that black alpha male, socially, politically, militaristically, economically, he is a threat to white supremacy. Masculine, strong black men are being phased out. Black men who support alternative lifestyles are being celebrated and praised. And it's not a coincidence, it's by design. You got to understand the system. This year alone, there has been outrage surrounding Jonathan Major's Ebony cover and rapper ASAP Rocky on the cover of British Vogue. I would have been in the front. I don't mind holding the baby, but I feel like the man should always be in the front leading because that's a, the man's job is to protect and lead his family. ASAP's Gucci campaign also got a lot of attention. Society is saying that for black men to get to a certain level, whether it was Dave Chappelle said it, they made Martin Lawrence wear a dress, they made all of these people wear a dress. Today's society is saying that for a black man to get ahead, you got to start feminizing yourself. In recent years, men's fashion shattering many long-held norms. Professional athletes wearing skirts and dresses, rappers wearing nail polish. I came home for Thanksgiving wearing pink socks. This spit stuffing out. Why are y'all gay? <laughs> Jack Knight is a comedian, but what he says hits home for many men. The FBI wanted to destroy black men so we could never build equity in our communities, so they wanted us to be detached from our families, so they made economic obstacles, the prison system flooded us with drugs, so subsequently it would lead to a generation of black men raised by their grandmas and their moms, just like me, creating a generation of sassy ass the backlash may be tied to the fact that black men have long been the picture of hyper-masculinity, from the football field to the recording studio. I've been running, no, no doubt you. A Pew Research Center study shows that black men are nearly twice as likely as white men to describe themselves as, quote, very masculine. That stereotype came from survival, coming from slavery, what we had to be as people of color and still be able to press on. Dr. Jeff Gardier is a board-certified clinical psychologist who says what is considered traditional masculinity has deep roots in the Black community. Black men asserting their manhood in the face of extreme societal emasculation from slavery, police brutality, economic oppression, and more. But hyper-masculinity can also be a double-edged sword. Well, I think in many ways it trapped us uh, as Black men uh, because we certainly are more than just a one-dimensional character. Hypermasculinity can constrict the black male to a sort of emotional functioning that may be unhealthy. Many today eager to move to an emotionally healthier place. Let go of toxic masculinity. The anger, the toughness, the hypersexuality, all of those things that comes with toxic masculinity, black men are the ones that get punished the most for it. In his Instagram post, Tyler James Williams adding that there is more than one way to be a straight black man, saying stereotypes, quote, reinforce an archetype many straight men have to live under that is oftentimes unrealistic less free and limits individual expression. I'm not the one you want the dice with. I'm the one you spend your life with. The framework of what masculinity means is a different thing. The young boys that are growing up today, they have new models and new archetypes. We a new generation now, you know what I'm saying? Certain things like walking around with a clutch in the 90s wouldn't have flown. Now right. it does and I'm proud of us for doing that. 
All right, so we wanted to dive a little deeper into this topic. And joining me now for that are Professor Odie, emotional intelligence coach, and Anton Daniels, social media influencer and business coach. We've seen a lot of uh, gender nonconforming clothes sometimes being worn by professional athletes. We see rappers with nail polish. Uh, you had Jonathan Majors on the cover of Ebony Magazine, which got a lot of attention. What do you make of some of what we've seen when it comes to black masculinity over the last few years? I think that it's the feminization of men. Absolutely. I think that it's it's the opportunity to really continue to destroy our family structure by forcing men to then embrace feminine ways by first identifying masculinity as toxic. There's nothing toxic about masculinity. And, and if it is, then how come we don't assign the, the toxicity label also to femininity? And so when you see this type of thing happen throughout society, we see it happen within our marriages. Now women are starting to say that they want partners instead of wanting husbands. We see men starting to conform and then take on roles within a household that is traditionally reserved for women. And so it, it completely removes our ability to be able to manage our, our emotions effectively or deal with things or even to embrace what it takes in order to be a man. you got to suffer. you got to grow. You have to have the opportunity to really fail and control environments that allow for you to be successful going forward. Masculinity is saying that you are not the head of this household as me. Because if anything happens within this household, it falls on my shoulders and not yours because pressure is made for shoulders and not hips. Professor Odia, what are your thoughts on some of the vulnerability that we're seeing now from black men? Do you think that there's something emasculating about that? Absolutely not. So when we talk about masculinity or how it is that we uh, contextualize masculinity, um, we equip masculinity in such a way that's toxic. So for example, I'm going to reference what it is that Anton said about pressure being made for shoulders and not heels. But when we talk about how it is that we as men take on this pressure and how it is that we are not able to appropriately move through this pressure because we cannot adapt to our emotional environments, it creates for a very, once again, toxic environment because you said we also are supposed to build. We are not moving in spaces where we are building emotionally safe environments. The family structure is deteriorating because we as men are not communicating and we are not connecting with our family in such a way where we can begin to grow them in a healthy and holistic way. So I want to ask you, Anton, do you think that any of this reluctance towards embracing these kind of gender fluidity and some of the new roles that we're seeing, is any of this rooted in homophobia, do you feel? I don't think that it's rooted in homophobia. And the problem with that word is that I'm not scared. Well, can, can, do, you think someone can, do you think someone can be gay and masculine? No, absolutely not. Not at all. It, it completely removes what's masculine about you your ability to really be able to embrace who you are as a man is largely defined by your genitalia or, or who it is that you sleep with when you see men start to do things in a feminine way even from the way that they move communicate how they dress and what it is that they portray for their sons it absolutely takes away from the masculinity and it also enables women to then say that there's their boss bees right they then start to look at themselves as partners they then start to take on a more masculine role within a household. I think that women instinctively want a strong man. They want to be submissive. But then at the same time, you have to give them something to submit to. And you can't submit to your girlfriend that then dresses like a girl, but is really a man. So a woman can be masculine, but a gay man cannot be masculine. You're essentially, you're essentially identifying masculinity, once again, as something that we equip in order to get things done. We are more concerned about who they sleep with than their humanity. And as men, I don't find that to be very masculine because if we are supposed to be providers and protectors of our entire community, 
how can we then come to say, you know what, I'm not going to protect you, or I'm not going to give this to you, or I'm not going to allow you to be in this space because you are not doing exactly what it is that I tell you to do, how it is that I tell you to do it. It's not leadership. Once again, that's dictatorship. When I think of masculinity, I think of our ability to be able to take care of our households, take care of our families, continue to keep the family intact, pass down generational wealth, build, build an infrastructure that allows for people to then be able to nourish themselves and then establish uh, cultural norms within our community that allow for us to thrive. If, if that is the litmus by which we're determining masculinity, then we're absolutely positively in last place. But Anton, couldn't a man do all the things that you just described as defining masculinity and also wear nail polish? No. Why? Absolutely not. 100%. Because you have to be the thing that you would want your daughter to marry and what you would want your son to grow up to be like. And that's how we define how it is that you're supposed to move within your household according to what masculinity truly is. Well, Professor Odie, I'm going to let you get the final word on this. What, what are your last closing thoughts in, in regard to this discussion? As men, I feel like we are continuing to embrace the idea of being more holistic and more available in our approach of raising our families and engaging in our families. And I actually, once again, I do agree with Anton in the idea that we do not have the power, we do not have the control. But when we identify these things as black men, we become very upset, we become very angry, and we lash out in our communities, we lash out in our families. And then that continues to perpetuate that the idea of this authoritarian masculinity is the most central and is the most correct masculinity. I'm saying that it's not. I'm saying that the divine, emotional, emotionally intelligent masculine is not an effeminized masculine. And it's not a masculine that somebody would be able to easily overtake because they understand how to both apply gentleness and force. Where do you draw the line, though? Unfortunately, I'm gonna, I am gonna—I have to draw the line here because we're out of time. Um, I would love the opportunity to talk to you both more about this. Um, you have really interesting perspectives. I appreciate your time and your perspectives on this topic. Thank you to Professor Odie and to Anton Daniels. And we would love to know what you think about this topic. So hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag BlackMen. That's at Revolt Black News or at Revolt. Next up, are companies trying to defund black media like Revolt. We're looking into how white corporations are breaking promises and silencing black voices. We have more on that when we come back. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 2020 was a watershed moment in this country. The seeming unity and collective desire to move race relations forward felt undeniable. There was also renewed interest in Black-owned media companies, like Revolt, and commitments to making sure that the places that tell Black stories survived and thrived. But in recent years, a lot of the interest has dried up, and so has the money. RBN examines defunding Black-owned media. What do you want? I can breathe. Please, the name of it. I can breathe. Three years ago, Black Lives Matter protests shook cities around the world, a reaction to the brutal murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and others. Corporate America seemed to take notice, posting in solidarity on their social media accounts and airing commercials in support of the movement. What do we want? Justice! What do we want? Justice! 
and announcing pledges to support diversity, including by committing up to 5% of ad budgets on Black-owned media companies like Revolt, Byron Allen's Allen Media Group, BET Networks, The Source, Essence Communications, Urban One Reach Media, owners of TV One, and Roland Martin's Black Star Network. At the time that these pledges were made in 2020, do you believe that it was their intention to follow through? I think that some uh, were sincere in the moment. I think some was just saying, we'll take advantage of the moment and get some good PR. Beware of the PR shell game. You speak based upon your actions, not based upon what you say. But three years later, the honeymoon is over. A report by Ad Age found that 2022 corporate spending on Black-owned media totaled $880 million. While this triples the amount spent in 2020, the spend was less than 1.5% of total budgets far short of the 5% promised in 2020. You've been having a lot of these conversations. What are you hearing as to why they have not followed through? Some have said uh, that uh, they intend to do it and it was on a scaling basis uh, in terms of years, which uh, in some cases we are not accepting. Others are saying that it fell through the cracks or that their revenue went down. Uh, uh, and then some are saying outright, you're right, Reverend, let's work this out. But black media moguls are fighting back and demanding what they were promised. In 2021, Revolt founder and chairman Diddy wrote a letter to corporate America titled, If You Love Us, Pay Us, in which he called out General Motors for lack of proportional investment in the network, writing, Revolt, just like other Black-owned media companies, fights for crumbs while GM makes billions of dollars every year from the Black community. We must be exerting maximum pressure on every single one of these companies and say, we're not going to wait 10 years. We're not going to wait five years. We're not going to wait two years. It must happen now. Byron Allen, whose media company owns the Weather Channel, among many others, filed a $10 billion lawsuit against McDonald's, accusing the fast food giant of racial stereotyping by not advertising on Black-owned media and depriving his companies of tens of millions of dollars of annual revenue. I said, look, McDonald's, you're taking in over $100 billion a year in revenue. 40% of that, approximately 40% of that is coming from the African-American consumer and you're spending less than $3 million a year in advertising with Black-owned media out of a budget that's a, a billion six. And that's just, you know, that's not right. In order for this to change, there has to be two methods. There has to be a legal strategy, and it has to be a street strategy. That was no different than the civil rights movement. McDonald's has countered Byron. They've said, we're doing things right. Well, guess what? You get to show it. You get to prove it. And if they show it, well, there you go. And in response to Ad Age's report, Revolt CEO Detavio Samuels posted this on LinkedIn. This means that black media was not even 1% of the market in 2020. We just got to 1% in 2022, in a year where several brands doubled their spend. Make it make sense to me. How is it that black culture has such a massive influence on global culture, but our media platforms are starved from the economics of one of the most powerful industries in the world? Hey, Martha, pass me that big, easy reach lighter and that bowl. Bowl of strawberries. Culture is one of America's most powerful exports. And throughout history, black Americans have shaped that culture, influencing what the US and consequently the globe deems cool. I 
In today's world, hip-hop culture is America's culture, and it's what drives trends, and trends drive marketing and sales. Last name ever, first name greatest, like a sprained ankle. Black people have always been the show, never the business. That's the problem. This is an example where we're saying, no, 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 we're the business in show business. We're focused on how do we build and sustain our own company. Still, the opportunity for corporate America is there for the taking. A 2021 McKinsey report called the Black American consumer market a $300 billion opportunity, writing that there's a big market to be unearthed if companies meet the needs of the Black consumer. The report goes on to state that despite being 13% of the U.S. population with nearly 50 million identifying as Black, Black households accounted for just under 10% of the nation's total spending on goods and services in 2019. And companies that interpret this data as proof that there's little profit in serving Black consumers are making a big mistake. Statistics bear this out. Combined spending by all Black households has increased 5% annually over the past two decades, outpacing the growth rate of combined spending by white households at just 3%. Black spending power reached a record $1.6 trillion in 2021. The ability to buy, save, and invest more than doubling since 2000. That growth exceeding the full U.S. economy. So could serving Black consumers make companies money and simultaneously support Black-owned media? Companies are not a bottom line business. You cannot ignore the reality of racism, discrimination, bigotry in all of this. And we cannot ignore this reality that there are companies that don't want to appeal to black people. There have been some signs of brands marketing to black people. Frito-Lay highlights black change makers in its Doritos Solid Black campaign, and Procter & Gamble's Widen the Screen initiative inspires black creatives to share their experiences. This is America. If you ain't having a money conversation, you're not having a conversation. And so all of these other initiatives is great, is cute, the t-shirts are wonderful. The money is in advertising. Comcast knows it, Disney knows it, Viacom knows it, Warner Discovery knows it. In response to growing pressure, Coca-Cola says they will increase their spending on minority-owned media to 8% by 2024, and McDonald's said they would increase ad spending on Black-owned media to 5%. Guess who's going to the game? But the question remains, when ad budgets are analyzed in 2024, will the numbers match the promises? Do you think that that will be necessary at some point, a boycott of some of these companies who are absolutely not making good on their word? Absolutely, it is uh, necessary. It's a matter of self-respect. It's a matter of self-regard. Our position must be that everybody that we patronize must be doing business with Black-owned uh, entities, especially Black-owned media. The only way that changes is when Black-owned media takes a hardcore stance to challenge every company, every agency, and say, you're not going to play us small. You are going to have to respect us, and the only respect in America is with the dollar. That is the only thing that people understand in America, money. 
Revolt Media was created for us, for our communities, and we are committed to making sure black creatives have a place and that black audiences get the content that they deserve. Like our chairman says, can't stop, won't stop. And that applies to holding corporations accountable. Coming up, Kennedy Rue is with Gabrielle Union, who's calling the entertainment industry out on their, quote, bullshit. How she's making sure her voice is heard. That's coming up next. But first, an update to a story that we've been following. It's clear from the body-worn footage that he was never a threat. Stay here. Sir, I need Stay some water. Here. Can you get some water? In January, 31-year-old English teacher Keenan Anderson, the cousin of Black Lives Matter founder Patrice Cullors, was visiting Los Angeles from Washington, D.C. when he was involved in a traffic accident. Hey, stop right there! The edited police body cam footage released by the LAPD shows the moments leading up to Keenan's death, where according to the lawsuit, he was tased for over 90 seconds while begging for help. But on Juneteenth, the family of Keenan Anderson held a press conference to announce a wrongful death lawsuit on behalf of his five-year-old son. The family suing the city and members of the department over his death for $100 million. Revolt Black News sat down with Patrice Cullors shortly after his death in January. He had just gotten into a car accident. So if you've ever been in a car accident, you're pretty shook. Your, 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 your emotions are high. You're, trying to make sense of what's happening. And my cousin looked confused. He looked concerned. And he also verbally was begging for help. The coroner's office says he died of an enlarged heart and cocaine use. An independent autopsy conducted by Keenan's family reached the same conclusion. But it matters not whether there was cocaine in his system because the actions of the officers were wrong. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. So if they want to call you crazy, fine. Show them what crazy can do. That Serena Williams Nike commercial struck a chord with Halle Berry, who posted to social media and said she's often been told to just, quote, be pretty and be quiet. And now another star is speaking out. Gabrielle Union says that she is spelled stifled, too. And our Kennedy Rue is here with more on that conversation. Hey, Kennedy. Hey, Mara. Yes. Despite her success, Gabrielle Union has felt the sting of sexism and racism. Like so many black women, she's had to fight just to be heard. In her social media post, Oscar winner Halle Berry said, quote, I've been labeled crazy most of my adult life. It's a label that has dogged my life and tried to undermine my journey. Today, I wear that label with pride as I continue to show them what crazy can do. If I say something, will I lose my job? Or am I now difficult? I have to ask you, what has been your experience like in the entertainment industry and in finding your voice? When you see, you know, when they say, if you see something, say something. Mm -hmm. And there was the, the moment that you see something and then you realize, wait, if I say something, I'm the problem. 
Gabrielle Union is not afraid to speak her mind. Whether she's promoting her new Netflix movie, The Perfect Find, with co-star Keith Powers, or addressing Hollywood's superficiality on a podcast. I think there's so much about Hollywood that is bullshit. And you can either sign up for it and like slim in it and you can have an amazing life swimming in the bullshit and then you wonder why you can't sleep at night. But it's come at a cost. As we celebrate you, Mackenzie, we celebrate Denise. This is all a bonus. I'm just rooting for you in life. When she was a judge on America's Got Talent in 2020, she spoke out about the environment behind the scenes, calling it toxic and racially insensitive, claiming that she was told her hairstyles were too black. You were like machines. You came to slay and we are deceased. Deemed difficult, she was fired. For many years, I didn't say anything. You just go to work, keep your head down, none of my business, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, no, I can't sleep at night thinking about this and I'm going to speak on it. And if I have to keep escalating and and getting, you know, taking it to the the next level, I will, because if I don't, who will? In corporate America, opinionated black women have often been dismissed as angry. And according to a study by the Harvard Business Review, it may be holding them back from realizing their full potential in the workplace. Hollywood's no different. There's a history of backlash against outspoken black actresses. Nia Long said she was labeled difficult for insisting on doing her own hair early in her career. Monique was blacklisted for refusing to promote her 2009 film Precious because she wasn't getting paid. And Issa Rae told a BeautyCon panel in 2019, quote, I have to sugarcoat because I know that the environment I'm in will label me as the angry or difficult black woman. It's a sentiment that Gabrielle understands all too well. They will come for your career. They will come for how you pay, you know, pay your family's bills. We shouldn't be afraid. Maybe get better. You know, like, don't call me the bad guy for demanding better, demanding what we all signed up for. Mm -hmm. You know, a healthy, respectful workspace. Gabrielle grew up in Northern California. Well, it's just a child, you know, I got a, you know, a car on my 16th birthday, etc., etc., etc. I was just a happy kid in the summer. Hey, Moesha, what's up, Nisi? In the mid-90s, she began acting with small roles in TV shows like Moesha and Sister Sister. We'll call you later, we'll go shopping. She also appeared in a string of movies, including her breakthrough role as a cheerleader in 2000's Bring It On. By the mid-2000s, she was a household name, appearing in blockbusters like Bad Boys 2. We went out on a date. And Think Like a Man. You're a brilliant artist. Now 50 and married to NBA legend Dwayne Wade, Gabrielle continues to challenge sexist stereotypes. Even in her new rom-com, The Perfect Find. You good, Sleeping Beauty? Could you be any cuter? You also look like a college student. I like something. One more season. She plays a 40-something single professional who falls in love with a younger man played by Keith Powers. There are distinct stereotypes around women finding love after 40. Yeah. What do you think about those societal stereotypes and what have you personally found to be true about that? 
listen, I got married for the second time at 40. Listen, I was just getting <laughs> <Yeah>. started. Um, <laughs> just like there's a word for, you know, the derogatory word for women. You know, they're like, oh, you're like a cougar. Yeah. You're yeah. uncontrolled. You're like an yes. animal. Yes. I was like, well, what's the word for men? Right, yeah. right. What, right. What are they called? Right. Yeah. I called them mercats. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Perfect Find streams on Netflix beginning June 23rd. It always still amazes me that the women who are the biggest names in our culture still dealing with this rampant sexism. But the legends like Halle Berry and Gabrielle Union speaking out will hopefully move the needle forward to make things better for all the black creatives coming behind them. And I have to say, this was a really exciting interview for me to do. I've known Gabrielle since I was a teenager, so talking to her always feels really special. Speaking of your long-standing relationship with Gabrielle Union, you guys look so cute, especially the teenage Kennedy Rue. Kennedy, oh my thank you so, so much. So cute, I love that. <laughs> Coming up, we are going to switch gears. We're gonna take a look at why it is so hard to raise money for black crime victims, and I'm holding us accountable. That's after the break. Welcome back. A few weeks ago, we reported on fundraising for Daniel Penny, the white vigilante who choked a black man to death on the New York City subway. Within just a few days, Daniel raised millions for his legal defense. That number is now up to almost $3 million. Let's compare that to the GoFundMe for A.J. Owens, the black mother in Florida who was killed by her white neighbor, a woman who by many accounts was a racist and who had reportedly called A.J.'s kids slaves and the N-word. Donations for A.J.'s four kids have reached $330,000. Think about that. Donations for a black victim are about one-tenth of those for a white vigilante. We see it time and time again. Kyle Rittenhouse, the white teen who killed two people during Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, easily raised $200,000 for his legal defense. But the Texas mother whose three daughters were brutally murdered is struggling to get to $25,000. You might say that the difference is that black people simply have less money to donate. But Daniel Penny's account shows that he got donations from almost 60,000 people, which means many gave very small amounts. No, we can't blame this on anyone else, fam. This is on us. This is about us showing up for each other the way that other communities do. And it's time for us to do a whole lot better. Well, that wraps it up. Remember to stay connected with us on Facebook, Twitter, Revolt on YouTube, our Revolt Black News podcast, and download the Revolt app. Until next time, good night, everyone.
Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.